You're listening to Life and Leadership, A Conscious Journey, the podcast that shares wisdom and strength. Join your host, Dr. Michelle St. Jane's weekly conversation on how to have a positive impact for people, planet, and the wider world. If you want to live a life of intention, be proactive with your time, and bring your vision for the future to life one today at a time, you are in the right place at the right time. Let's get started. He is an astrodynamicist and an associate professor in the area of aerospace engineering and engineering mechanics at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome, Moriba. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. So why the University at Austin? What is it that they will contribute to this conversation around space? Yeah, so, you know, one of the main reasons why I chose UT to come to and lead this, call it transdisciplinary research in space safety, security, and sustainability is because I realized that these problems that we have in space, they're wicked problems. They're wicked problems in that they're complex systems. There's a growing number of participants making decisions in the absence of knowing the decisions of others, but kind of dependent on the decisions that they make. We don't fully understand, you know, causal relationships in space and all these things. And I said, well, it's not just going to be an astrodynamicist that solves this because it's not just about orbits and that sort of thing, but it's also about culture. It's also about the social science aspect of it. It's also about the, you know, the law, the policy, environmental sustainability. And so the solution has to be something that goes across disciplinary boundaries and fuses all these things together to come up with a holistic answer. And that's transdisciplinarity. And so I looked at UT and I said, wow, these people, have an awesome aerospace engineering department, but they have, you know, the LBJ School of Policy. They have a law school. They have the Strauss Center for International Security and Law. They have environmental sciences. So I saw all these disciplines that I realized that that needed to be combined to arrive at this kind of transdisciplinary solution. And so that's why UT made a lot of sense. Being here as an academic also gives me some freedom to pursue my intellectual curiosity in these sort of challenge areas. And it allows me to interact with colleagues from other countries where maybe government to government, it's very difficult to have conversations. But as a professor, as a scientist, I can talk to colleagues and countries that, again, at the government level, that might be a stretch or challenging. The other thing, too, is that the solutions that I'm trying to find aren't pigeonholed into having to look and be dressed up a certain way. I have freedom to explore the art of the possible. And then in that space, try to identify what from the art of the possible can be migrated into state of practice. Wow, I love how you think. And I wished I could have talked to you last century. (laughs) I decided to go to law school and I chose a brand new law school because they were practicing teaching us law in the context of society. And that's what I'm hearing is you have this, this theme that's collaborative and cooperative, but also strategic and smart thinking while not losing sight of the fact that this is a wicked problem. And in fact, back in 1993, when I was heading into an international business, career, I took a paper on where I had a chance to do a thesis on outer space and the internet because these were very untraveled planes. And in fact, my university was where the internet started outside of being inside, you know, from an intranet to an internet actually was led by the University of Waikato. But I was thinking about those things back then. And the reason I was thinking about them was because as a kid, I wanted to be an intergalactic explorer. And I remember sitting in front of a black 
and white TV watching Neil Armstrong and his crew land on the moon and just thinking, I could do that. <laughs> Way before women had any chance of being astronauts or in this area. But of course, there were women helping to make that happen in the background. So I celebrate your presence here, Moriba. I really do. So thank you, because I think we don't want to lose track of what can universities complement this space. And you so wisely say, you know, this opportunity for transparency, which can't always be there in diplomacy. So I just want to touch on your journey. You've had this amazing array of opportunities in this area. Can you just share with the listeners where you've been and how you got here? Yeah. So in terms of, you know, my specific work in space stuff, you know, after high school, I enlisted in the U.S. Air Force as a security policeman stationed at Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana. And it was my job to guard so-called intercontinental ballistic missiles or nuclear missiles. And I grew up in Venezuela and Caracas. And Caracas is a major city, millions of people, lots of light at night. And so on a good night, in Caracas, you might be able to see the moon kind of thing. You can't really see a whole lot of stars because of all the night lights. And so when I got to Montana and uh, working my night shifts, the first thing that was awesome was it was the first time in my life that I had been in a place with skies that were so dark. And being in a place with skies so dark, let me see stars that I, I never imagined. Like I always knew there was lots of stars. I'd never really been able to quantify that in my mind's eye. And now with my naked eye, I could see the milky way and these sorts of things. Like just, it was with my naked eye, I could see the, you know, the center of our galaxy and that sort of stuff. And so that was awe-inspiring. But then the thing that I noticed is that depending on the night, if it was closer to dawn or dusk, I could see dots of light moving across the sky and doing a little bit of detective work. I found out that these dots of light, they weren't planes, they weren't meteors. They were actually things that humans had put into earth orbit. And I was like, wow, with my naked eye, I can see an object that humanity is responsible for orbiting the earth. That is really awesome. I need to know and understand more about that. And so that motivated me to pursue, you know, this education in aerospace engineering after I finished my enlistment. Oh, I totally agree. I was born and grew up and lived in New Zealand until I was a teenager before I started my global travels. And recently, 4,300 square kilometers of New Zealand in the South Island was recognized as an international dark sky reserve. And, you know, it's been labeled one of the best stargazing sites on Earth. But I grew up with these stars all around without the light pollution, which we'll touch on in a moment because I know that's going to come up. So what is the problem? In your area of expertise, what you're working on. Tell us a little bit about what is the problem? Because I do not hear very many people talking about this. And I want to be intergalactic explorer, <laughs> a dark sky reserve fan and the stars. And I'll tell you a bit later as some of my career has touched on this as well. But yeah, more of a share what the problem is. So it dawned on me not that long ago that we have a lost ecosystem, a lost pleiad. So if we see the earth and all her ecosystems, land, ocean, air, I can call these grouping of ecosystems like the Pleiades, just like the Greek goddesses and constellation. But there is much like with the Pleiades, there's this concept of the lost pleiad. I would say that with earth ecosystems, there is a lost ecosystem that is becoming more and more apparent with time, and that's near earth space. So 
So Nero spaces, the lost ecosystem, the lost Pleiad. And, you know, much like when you look at a sky where there's no clouds, it's a bright, sunny day, clear skies, your eyes can't tell what the wind currents are because you need to see something actually being influenced by it in order to infer that, right? So it's like, as soon as you have one cloud or you have a bird flying, oh, okay, I can tell that there's a breeze, this, that, or the other. So I think that, you know, a hundred years ago, when we looked at our night sky, there wasn't a single satellite in orbit that humans had put up. And so when you looked at the night sky, you could see the Milky Way, the planets, all this stuff. Now, you don't just see that. Now we have these quote unquote clouds or, or effective like birds or whatever, just like in the air, we have this in near Earth space. And so now we can see the rubbish, just like you can look at the ocean and say, oh, I can see what the ocean currents are because of the plastics. So unfortunate, but it tells you what the ocean currents are looking like. Now we can see what these orbital currents are around the Earth because we have an ecosystem that has mostly been comprised of anthropogenic space objects, things that humans either put up there or are responsible for. And so just like other ecosystems, this lost Pleiad is a finite resource because we only put satellites in very specific orbital highways, just like we have very specific shipping lanes in the ocean and that sort of stuff. And given that it's a finite resource, it needs to be managed holistically by humanity. We don't have a system to do that. And so the Outer Space Treaty, which is kind of like the main you know, legal instrument for how to behave in space and that sort of stuff, is very broadly interpreted. And so everybody's free to do kind of whatever they want, as long as they don't cause harmful interference, which who knows what that means. And so people legally are launching as many satellites as they can. They're making decisions about how to behave up there, but those decisions are mutually exclusive from the decisions that other people are making. Nobody's really sharing what their basis for decision-making is. Most of the stuff up there doesn't come back. It stays up there pretty much forever. So we have this finite resource that, for lack of a better term, there's an orbital carrying capacity that is being saturated. And once saturation is reached in terms of orbital carrying capacity, those orbits will become unusable for humanity's benefit to provide services and capabilities every day, like banking, position, navigation, timing, weather, climate change, kind of monitoring, like all these things are basically arm's way. There's no guarantee that these things are going to work from one moment to the next. So that's the problem. Uh, very eloquently put, there are no traffic lights. The commercial sector is at will at this point. So kind of space traffic management and orbital safety is certainly an issue. I had the opportunity to work in and around the launching of the satellites and rockets in the 90s. And that was one of the first things that came to me. I would say to any executive, I could have a conversation about what are we doing about polluting this space? And they were like, why? What's the problem? Well, here we are coming on 30 years later, we have a capacity and it's being saturated. And, you know, we are very dependent now in terms of how we can do our observations and what progress we can make around active debris removal. In fact, debris was one of my major platforms that I'd be very concerned about. And in fact, I moved away from that industry because I felt like there was no conscious stewardship of that space. That's the word I would use now. I didn't have that lingo at the time, but I was doing my law degree and I was fascinated by space. And I figured if I couldn't get on a mission, then why not get on financing these missions for the betterment of the planet and also for the cosmos. There might be some contribution we can make. At that point 30 years ago, my had a thumbs down on the contribution I felt that we could make. And it was those satellites and rockets and all that stuff that was going up that has given us this godlike technology today. But we haven't evolved. In the words of E.O. Wilson, he says, we have godlike technology, paleolithic emotions and medieval institutions and law is one of the very oldest 
this medieval institution. So we really, we have a lot to answer for, but this conversation doesn't seem to be out there. So I really appreciate the fact that you're out there doing this for sure. So explain about tag and track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So the thing is, most of the population of anthropogenic space objects in near Earth space, we can only track things down to about the size of a cell phone all the way up in size to about the space station. But objects that are smaller can do a lot of harm. So things that are like one centimeter and below, which are really not trackable. So these things are like random bullets. The thing is, because out of this 26,000 kind of objects that we do track, maybe about 3,300 of those are working satellites. Everything else is rubbish. And because it is, it's not really transmitting its identity. So, you know, the question is, whenever you detect objects in the Earth, how do you know the identity of the object? And so we have to piece these things together by aggregating, you know, massive quantities of disparate sources of information and somehow try to fuse all these things to try to then infer and solve that identity crisis for these objects. So detecting objects of itself is not really what we want. It's needed, but it's insufficient. We need to then ascribe or associate identity of the objects to these detections so that we can kind of keep track and monitor and understand the population. Oh, excellent. So where do we go from here, Moriba? What is your hope? And I think you've put a few interesting things out there in terms of at least identifying the problem and making it visible. Well, first, we need to raise awareness. You know, we we have this thing called eyesonthesky.org, which is a project to try to do that raising of awareness and basically trying to remind humanity that, you know, space is where we come from, we're stardust. And for now, space seems to be dominated by the billionaires and all this other stuff, you know, that needs to change. And I think the most important thing is for humanity to recognize uh, near Earth space as this lost pleiad and say, okay, it is a finite resource. And because of that, it's also in need of environmental protection. And then let's extend environmental protection narratives to include near-Earth space. And, and I think at that point, we can then develop these sustainability metrics like the orbital carrying capacity, like a space traffic footprint, which would be like a carbon footprint analog to understand the burden that any given object dead or alive poses on anything else and that sort of stuff. Once we have that and we can then provide some very transparent like evidence of the population and how people are behaving and how these objects are behaving, I think that'll shed light into how we jointly manage this ecosystem in a way that helps, I guess, maximize its usability for humanity uh, here on. Thank you, Moriba. Can we just touch on light pollution? Another one of my heartfelt concerns. Can you explain what light pollution is and why we should care? Absolutely. So there are two things, right? Most people understand the light pollution as on the ground, lots of lights that kind of make it such that it's difficult to, you know, you don't have the dark skies to kind of look at. But there's also the light pollution from these anthropogenic space objects. Basically, it's the way that I got interested in space, right, was being able to actually see a human-made object orbiting the Earth. And so back in, you know, 1989, when that happened, you know, much fewer objects orbiting than now. And so so when people look go to a dark sky now, especially you know astronomical instruments that want to look at things that are very far, very dim signals, they have to contend with all these anthropogenic objects reflecting sunlight in the direction of their telescopes. So these are nuisance parameters now. This is basically undesired signals that they have to somewhat find their way through to get to the actual you know science that they want to be able to achieve. 
Yes, I saw when Elon Musk sent up one of his first sky satellite sky trains, what flagged it for the rest of the world was the UK astronomers because they realized, you know, that was going to mess things up. And there was like, was it 60 satellites that went up? Right, right. Also those who are listening to see if anyone's out there, you know, there's a number of things that can be a problem for that, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Wow. So what is the latest things happening? How many is the next Earth Explorer mission by the European yeah, so like I said, there's kind of this new space race, try to get as many satellites on orbit as quickly as possible, because even though there are no deeds for orbital space, it's kind of a first come first served in terms of the physics, you know, two things can't occupy the same space at the same time or bad things happen sort of thing. So I think, yeah, people are trying to capitalize on, you know, profit making from space-based capabilities and all these things and trying to get, you know, who gets there first. I think that there's this race going on. And, you know, unless we can jointly manage this resource, I think that race could end up being, you know, detrimental to humanity long-term. Yes. And if it's only underwritten by the values of the sacred money market, then there's more than the environmental and social impacts for Earth, but the whole cosmos. And I identified back in 1993, 94, I was really upset. And I tried to have these conversations. I don't actually feel like anyone's really listening. And I really appreciate your presence being out there, what you're sharing, because you shared recently this really fabulous way to map space pollution. And, you know, I think, was it a glove, an astronaut? glove that was one of the very identifiable things that I saw I'm sorry I can't think of the name of it my mind's all blank yeah, yeah, no. So what we have done is, you know, we've been trying to develop something like a space traffic application here in the United States. There's an application for regular traffic called Waze, and it's called the Participatory Sensing Network in that the people that have the app can contribute information. Oh, there's a, you know, a vehicle had an accident. There's something in the road. There's maybe a officer hiding behind this bush, that sort of stuff. So we want to create something like that for space traffic where it's open to all of humanity and Anybody can contribute information to it, kind of like a crowdsourcing citizen science kind of thing, and basically make space transparent, predictable, and develop a body of evidence that can hold people accountable for their behaviors. It's called astriograph. That's the word, astriograph. That's the word, yeah. That was an amazing visual of, of what's happening that kind of really brings it home to people. So in terms of some last words, what would be your dream outcome for this decade? So in this decade, the world is going to behave like this and outer space is going to, I'll leave it up to you. I want to bring this back to what motivated me to become a space environmentalist. And I lived on Maui for several years and I saw the ecological deterioration on the islands. Very sad to see the number of plastics and all this other stuff in the landfills. And it was just amazing to me how an island that was, you know, so remote and isolated didn't have best practices in terms of recycling and all these things. Some years later, I went to Alaska and I saw something very similar and a very big disparity between natives and, you know, everybody else. Same thing on Hawaii. And I had kind of an inner shift of a very kind of intimate relationship with the universe, so to speak, where in my mind's eye, I saw humanity over history kind of abandoning its intergenerational contract of being stewards and custodians of life to becoming owners of things and how that sense of ownership has not been overall positive for humanity or life. 
life. And I felt that I was, you know, and I saw that there were pockets of specific people, indigenous people who over millennia, you know, the Maori, Aborigines, Inuit, who over millennia have developed a balance with their environment. And this is, you know, I guess more formalizing what's called traditional ecological knowledge or TEK. And so basically being, I guess, inspired by these indigenous people that have developed these ecologically sustainable practices, I was asked, you know, would I be willing to do everything within my capability to remind humanity of this intergenerational contract of stewardship and custodianship and look the voices of our ancients, these indigenous peoples across the globe who understand that all things are interconnected, honor the interconnectedness, celebrate the diversity, and believe that action is best when it's born from a place of compassion. That's what I want. So that's my goal. That's my guide star. That's my compass. And I want to apply all these things, you know, for space sustainability. Count me in on team, Moriba. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Moriba. Thank you so much. Any last words as we wrap up? I think that might be it for me. One thing to just say is that sometimes it takes courage to move in in the right direction. And and I'm going to define courage as the absence of paralysis in the presence of fear. And I'm not fearless. I have anxiety. I fear many things, but I don't let it paralyze me. And so I challenge everybody to be courageous. I appreciate your warm words of wisdom and I'm on your team. I really, really am grateful and appreciate you more of a thank you. Thank you. Dr. Michelle St. Jane is a conscious steward of meaningful leadership in the world and the wider cosmos. Tune in every Thursday for real talk around life, leadership, and your conscious journey. Be ready to create and cultivate your dreams and soul-hearted desires. Your support is valued. Please subscribe. Leave a review and a rating. But more importantly, share with your connections.